Um, and uh, there's, we have, on our Facebook, on our church Facebook page, there's already been like a little bit of back and forth correspondence about people's ideas about this passage, and I love it. Um, but it's the, 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 the passage of Jesus feeding the multitude. Um, so let me just read the passage, and then we'll just dive right in, okay? Uh, this is Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And for those of you who don't know, we're, we're going through the book of Mark. Every week we're taking a big chunk of Scripture and reading it and analyzing it and thinking about it and applying it to our lives. So right now we're in Mark chapter 6. And it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. You remember, I'll just pause for a minute. You'll remember this is right after they had returned from their missionary travels. He had sent them out two by two on missionary travels. They were all coming back. They had been out for months. And they were coming back and they were telling him, this is what happened. This is what happened on my trip. And he said, look, let's just take a break. We're going to pull away and we're going to retreat for a little while. And the reason was because many people were coming and going and these disciples had no leisure even to eat. They were being swarmed by crowds. And they went away in a boat, Jesus and the disciples, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many people saw them going and recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there to the landing place. They got there ahead of them. When Jesus and the disciples went ashore, he saw a great crowd And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away. Send the people away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and let them buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go uh, and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, they came back and they said, we have five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. It was very strategic planning for this scripture of the feeding of the five thousand to land on Super Bowl Sunday. I just want you to know that's not an accident. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this is, a, <laughs> thanks. um, this is a story that is very familiar to all of us. And it was very, very familiar to the early Christians. This is a story. This is one of those stories that was told over and over and over and over again by early Christians. This is the only story in the Bible other than the resurrection of Jesus that is in all four of the gospels. This was a foundational story. For the, early, uh, for the early Christians. We all have stories in our lives that we sort of, there are, they're the stories, they're like our go-to stories, the stories that we kind of just tell over and over because they describe something about us or about a particular time and place or about the people that we know. Um, my grandfather, who was a pastor for many years here in Wellston in New City and then out in, the, out in uh, Bridgeton, was notorious, and some of you know him, was notorious for rehashing this, this 
you know, a story over and over and over from the pulpit. And it would be like, and they all, you know, they started having names. Like, oh, yeah, that was the story. That was the, uh, you know, the, 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 the man in the basement story. Or that was the, you know, the, the red car story. He had these stories that he would kind of go to. And you kind of got them after a while. But somehow they were, always, they were always fresh because they were always sort of applicable to your life. Whenever uh, Rebecca and I get together with a new couple, we always end up inevitably telling the story of how we got together. The very first story of, you know, our first date at the airport in Phoenix, Arizona, when she was coming in from Nashville. And, you know, we tell this story over and over, and we, 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 we can't help it. We just love the story. That, you know, I've told it before here, but the story very briefly is we hadn't seen each other in years. Last time I had seen her, she was this prim and proper church girl, and, and I was kind of like living this kind of crazy, wild, reckless life, not a Christian. And in the interim, we had kind of, sw- I, don't, I wouldn't say we switched roles, but I had become a Christian. I was going to law school. I was sort of high and tight. I had my khakis on, my button-down shirt, and I was, you know, I was, you know, just kind of, you know, I don't know. What do you call it? She called it square. Um, but, uh, and, and she had gone from like this prim and proper church girl to like being out with all these hipsters in Nashville, and she had her bob haircut and the dark stuff around her eyes, you know, and like kind of slinking off the plane anyway. And we kind of looked at each other like, you know, who are you? Like, whoa, whoa, what, what happened to you? We're like, all right, well, we'll, we'll uh, I guess we'll still go on this date and we'll still get married. And, you know, but, uh, but it's kind of, a, it, it, it's a really funny story about how we were sort of like surprised by each other and yet we're madly in love with each other at the same time. So we tell that story over, that's one of our stories. Um, I always tell the story of, you know, there, some buddies and I used to take these road trips every year from college. And the story we always tell when we get together is the story about how we were driving from, I think we were in Nevada, and we, we were driving across the, across the southwest, and it was nighttime, and one of my buddies was driving, and the other two of us fell asleep, one guy in the back seat and me in the passenger seat. And all, the next thing I knew, I hear this, dink, 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 dink. And I'm, and I'm kind of waking up, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I hear somebody going, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I open my eyes. I'm, a se- I'm asleep in the passenger seat of this car. I open my eyes, and there's a police officer with his head in the, in the, in the car going, excuse me, excuse me. And my buddy Brett is in the back seat, passed out. We don't know where the driver is. Uh, we're we're on the, parked on the edge of a cliff in Sedona, Arizona, as it turns out. But we didn't know that. And the officer is saying, what are you guys doing? And we're saying, we don't know. We were in, we were in, uh, we were in Nevada last time we checked. Um, but apparently, our buddy who was driving decided this would be a good place to pull over, go down to the creek and wash up. And, and so he pulled over while we were both still asleep, and the policeman came. And anyway, it all worked out. But my buddy Brett was in the back, uh, still deep asleep when the officer was trying to, to talk to him. And Brett had this sort of twitch when he would sleep, you know, and he's sort of back there herking and jerking. Anyway, um, you really had to be there, but it was, it's one of those stories we tell every, every time we get together. So we have these stories, all of us have these stories, and we tell them over and over because they, they give some sort of sense of who the characters are and what they're doing. And this, this story, this week's passage, is the story that in many respects perfectly captures the essence of um, who Jesus was, what his disciples were doing, and why he was doing it. And there's a le- there are a lot of layers to this story that we can overlook. And I want to just kind of probe a little bit past some of the outer layers. And I think we'll find some illuminating insights into what Jesus was like, why, what he was doing, why he was doing it, and what it means for us today as we uh, seek to follow him. That being said, 
I found this passage to be very, very difficult to prepare for because it is so familiar. And f- familiar and familiarity breeds contempt. You read a story, you go, "Oh yeah, I got that." The five loaves and the, you know the two fishes got that story. Um, but you know we've we've seen the story in Sunday school. We've seen the flannel board. You, did you guys ever have the Sunday school flannel board cutouts of Jesus? You know, or was that you know? Uh, but you know they had the flannel board cutout to Jesus and the little two dimensional disciples and then like the little bread and the little boy with his basket. You know, and. Uh, Strangely, they always have, they always depict the fish as not being cooked. Have you ever noticed that? Um, and I don't know why that is, and I don't know why this kid's mom gave him two uncooked fish. Uh, but uh, go on Google Images and type in fish, loaves and fishes, and none of them have the fish cooked. I don't know why that is, but um, that's a deep theological question we can probe into, you know, during our life group. Um, so... Uh, as I'm reading this passage and studying this passage and reading various uh, commentaries on it, the question kept coming up for me, what does it mean today? What does it mean for us to be, f- to be followers of Christ? What does that really mean? What does that mean to you to be a follower of Christ? You know, in the first century Galilee, it was clear what it meant. A person who followed Christ was a person who literally followed Christ. You know, he would walk and then they would walk behind him and they followed him. What does it mean for us to follow Christ? And, um, you know, this story, I think, addresses that. Um, So I want to just sort of summarize the story for you and give you a little more detail and a little more background about the context of the story. And then let's dive in and think about what does it mean for us to be followers of Christ? So this story takes place. It's springtime in Israel. Uh, the rains of March and April had come. The foothills around Galilee had soaked up the rain, and the, the, the brown hills were now green. The, the scripture even says they were sitting down on the green grass. This story took place at the height of Jesus' popularity. Uh, stories about him had been circulating all around Galilee. The disciples had gone out by two, two by two into all of the villages around the region, had performed wondrous works. Jesus was becoming known as a, a, a wise and wonderful prophet, a man who healed people, a man who exorcised uh, you know, evil spirits. He was becoming known and becoming very, very popular in the region. He was also becoming known as a person who was not afraid to address the religious and political establishment. He wasn't afraid to confront them. Uh, and so his fame and his reputation was spreading. This was also a time of great sadness in this region. Why? If you were here last week, we, we studied the, uh, the murder of John the Baptist by Herod. John the Baptist was a beloved prophet in this region. People loved John the Baptist. John the Baptist had gone into these hills and he had baptized these people and he had preached to them and he had helped them turn their lives around and he had given them hope and it reminded them that they're people of God and that God is going to make a way for them and that God had chosen them. He's out there reminding people and, he's, and he was also proclaiming to them there's someone coming after me that's mightier than I who's going to open the way and prepare and and open the way for you to participate in God's kingdom. So John the Baptist had gone out there and inspired these people and encouraged these people. And now their leader, word is spreading throughout Galilee, that their leader, their political leader, Herod Antipas, who was a puppet dictator under the Roman regime, had murdered 
John the Baptist, had beheaded him as a party favor for his, for his niece and his sadistic wife, and people are deeply frustrated. People were deeply angry. People were, were, were mortified that this leader who was supposed to be an observant Jew like them, who, who was supposed to, to, to love God, had murdered their prophet. So there was a great deal of bitterness and anger stirring up in that region at this time. It was also Passover, okay? And Passover was huge. It still is huge. Uh, Passover was the celebration of the Jews coming out of Egypt, unshackling their bonds of slavery, and marching to the promised land. That's what the Passover feast was. That's what they were celebrating at the time that this story took place. But you have to remember, it's hard to celebrate the, the, the story of God leading you into freedom when you have a, a dictator over you who is, who is you know, uh, not observant of God's law, but who is, is, is kowtowing to the Roman Empire. It's hard to celebrate your freedom, your freedom from slavery, when the Romans are, are taxing you and oppressing you and desecrating your temple. So, so there, you know, there are all these dynamics going into this, this day, this sadness, this bitterness, this disappointment, this frustration, the perplexity of how can we be people of God? How can this be, you know, how can we still believe in the promise of God when all of this stuff is happening? That's a little sort of context for how, you know, what this, what this story, you know, where the story took place. Um, and remember, Jesus' disciples had just returned at the beginning of the passage. They had just returned from their mission. They're exhausted. They're worn out. They're, they'd been away from their family for a long time. They wanted to just, they wanted to just regroup, kick back, get, sit around a campfire, you know, eat some food and swap some war stories and relax. And they can't do it because people are pressing in. Uh, in fact, the, the scripture says they didn't even have the leisure to eat. There's a lot of eating in this story. But um, all they want is some solitude. And remember, not only were the people angry about John's murder at this time, but Jesus, as we learn in one of the other Gospels, Jesus was despondent. This was Jesus, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Remember, Elizabeth and Mary were first cousins. John, Jesus loved John the Baptist. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest among the men in Israel. Jesus respected and admired John the Baptist. John the Baptist had helped launch Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist was the one, remember, who said, hey, I'm here, you know, baptizing you with water, but this guy's going to baptize you with, the, with fire and the Holy Ghost. I mean, he said, this guy, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. You know, he said, this, this is the one. And, and that was the launch of Jesus' public ministry. That We read that on the first Sunday that we started here, you know, in, in, in Mark chapter 1. So Jesus was, was, was sad at the loss of his cousin, and he had to have been furious. Um, the depravity of Herod's act, the decadence of it, the context of it, you know, at, at Herod's birthday party, his niece dances before him and asks for the head of John the Baptist, and it's just a, it's just a dark and, and dreary and decadent picture. And, and this is the context in which uh, these guys, Jesus wants to head out into the wilderness and just be with his men and think through this stuff. So uh, they, they, they start to uh, they, they get in the boat, and they start to head out. Well, remember that the... the um, 
the story of John the Baptist's murder has already started circulating in the village. Uh, and some of the people that were nearby the lake, and this is the Sea of Galilee. You know, we've, we've sometimes put up a map, and I, I could have brought a map, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it next time. But there, So the Sea of Galilee, you know, it's about two miles wide and about five miles long. It's not huge. It's like a huge, it's like a big lake. Um, but so we're talking about up in the sort of northern region there. And some of the people that knew Jesus and the disciples saw them getting in this boat and they were going to shove off. And the crowds started following, not in boats, but on the seashore. So, you know, they're, they're literally following along the shore as Jesus and his disciples are kind of cruising out along the, you know, out in the water. And as these people are following the trajectory of the boat, they, they could see where they were going to land. And so the people started running ahead. And as they ran, they went through all these little fishing villages and they started saying, hey, Jesus and his disciples are going over to Bethsaida, this, this sort of north, uh, sort of northeastern city on the Sea of Galilee. And so people, you know, it's Passover. They're on holiday. They don't have to work. And there's all of this stuff going on. Jesus, uh, John had just been murdered. Uh, the disciples had been around preaching. And so what started happening was people started going from house to house, village to village, and saying, Jesus and his disciples are going to Bethsaida. Let's go. And tens, hundreds, and the scripture says thousands of people started heading that way. Okay? What was happening is that in the hearts and the minds of these people, they began to think, what if, Jesus is the one that is going to come and liberate us from the oppressive forces of Herod and the Romans. What if he is the king that has been prophesied that will help us break free a a, a military revolt? What if he's the one that's supposed to rise up and be like King David or be like Moses and lead us out from the oppression of the the Romans and and the Herodians and this whole messed up crowd. What if he's the one? We know that's the case uh, because, well, uh, I was, because in one of the Gospels, uh, well, let me hold off on that. We know that's the case, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Um, so, so these people started, these people started coming, ar- coming around and swarming uh, the area of Bethsaida. Uh, we tend to think culturally of this story as the story of the great picnic, but it was not a picnic. These people were coming because they wanted to start a revolution. Okay? These people were not coming to primarily to get healed, primarily to hear teachings about love. They were coming to choose a king, to rally around Jesus, to make him the king of Israel, to reestablish a kingdom in Israel to overthrow the Romans. When Jesus landed, there was a crowd, the scripture says, of roughly 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children in that number. Uh, Some scholars think that there may have been up to 15 or 20,000 people gathered on the shores near Bethsaida when Jesus and his disciples landed. Just to give you an idea of what 15 to 20,000 people is, Scott Trade Center holds 19,150 people you know, for the Blues hockey games. So if you can imagine that number of people gathered on a little seashore 
in Galilee waiting for Jesus and his disciples to land. That's what it looked like. That's the context. Okay. There were no red and white picnic blankets spread out on the ground. This is, this is a group of people standing there on the shore going, get over here. We need to talk to you. The scripture says they got there before him. So they ran around. They got there before him. They wanted to figure out if he's the one to set them free. So here's another clue to, to the sort of underlying military and political nature of this meeting, of this gathering. Jesus says when he got off the boat, he had compassion upon them because, he quotes, they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a beautiful turn of phrase, and it's a very poetic turn of phrase, but it's, it's not accidentally put there. What Jesus was doing is quoting Moses. Okay, I'm going to take you back just for a second. Quoting Moses from the book of Numbers, chapter 27, right after Moses had led the children out of Israel, or out of Egypt, sorry, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. He had just led them out. They were, they were on their way to freedom, and they needed to establish a political and military presence. And, and Moses says in 2716 Numbers, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Lord, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is quoting Moses. And so, in in response to that, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. You shall invest him with your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel will obey him. So what happened? When Moses laid his hands on Joshua and conferred upon him his authority, Joshua became one of the most powerful and, and mighty sort of military and political leaders in Israel at that time. So Jesus knows that what's happening here is that these people want him to take on a, they want him to, to start a revolution. They want him to start a revolt. They want him to violently overthrow the Roman regime and We know this, and here's the part I was going to tell you before, but we know this because in John, when they talk about it, Jesus perceives that the people were going to take him by force and make him king. So this crowd of people were there to to make a, they were there to make a king. They wanted a king and they wanted it now. Uh, They were going to take him by force. And in fact, at the end of the story, Jesus had to slip away because he didn't want to be taken by them by force to become a king. In that, in that way. He wanted to become a king, but in a very different way. Okay, for the miracle. Evening wore on. The crowd began to, to grow uh, tired and hungry. And Jesus' disciples came to him and offered a, a very reasonable idea, which is, hey, it's late. Why don't we dismiss the folks, let them go to the villages, and let them eat? And Jesus said that very frustrating, perplexing s- statement, you give them something to eat. Uh, and the emphasis in the Greek is on you. You give them something to eat. Uh, of course, they, you know, in, all, in almost all the Gospels, they have a sort of a sarcastic retort, you know. And uh, in this one, they say, look, we've got 200 denarii. You know, what do you want us to go and, and you know, buy food for all these people? Um, and that's when he says, go see what you've got. They go out. They find the boy who's got the, the loaves and the fishes. They bring those to him. 
uh, Jesus commands the people to sit down. There's a little detail of they sit down in groups of 50 and 100, sort of ranks, uh, and Jesus lifts up the bread, blesses it, breaks the bread, and starts handing it out, and the disciples start distributing it, and, it, and they feed the entire crowd of 15 or 20,000 people, and there are 12 baskets left over. The people were satisfied. It is a beautiful story of a beautiful miracle. It's a beautiful, compelling story, um, and I think that we can drill into it to try to understand what that question was that I asked at the very beginning, which is, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does this story teach us about what it means to become a follower of Christ? One of the things it teaches, one of the primary things that we learn from this story is that being a true follower of Christ, a true disciple of the living God, is very demanding. It's a demanding occupation. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, who is a great uh, British writer and theologian, says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Following Christ, truly following, I'm not talking about sitting on the hill and getting fed. I'm talking about being one of the disciples, following him. If that's what our goal is in life, it's a demanding occupation. You know, uh, when my dad planted a church in Phoenix many years ago, he was 50 years old. He, there was very little support, uh, you know, f- for the church. He went out there to Phoenix with just his family. Everyone thought he was absolutely out of his mind. And he planted this church in Phoenix. He felt God had called him to do it. He planted this church in Phoenix. Seven people at the launch service. <laughs> Somehow that, that, will, that will stick with me until I'm 90, and I, won't, I'll, I will always laugh when I think about the launch of, of uh, Christ Life Church. But seven people, and just, just watching him, just observing him follow God, follow God's call in his life, when nobody else, including us, thought that he knew what he was doing. It was amazing. He just, the, God had called him to do it, and he just went and did it. Really following the call of God can be very, very demanding on us. Um, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about salvation by works or you've got to do A, B, and C to please God. That's not at all what I'm talking about. God's gift of salvation to you is free and it's grace and you don't have to do anything. It's what he did, not you. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about past that. I'm talking about if you really want to be a follower of Christ. He may challenge you. He may call you to do things that you're not comfortable with. He may call you to step out in faith and do some things that you're just not, you've just never done before. You know, if, if I've never done anything that I am proud of or that, I've, that I feel really good about or I've done any kind of accomplishment that I really love except that it was demanding of me. Have you, have you ever just, you know, if you think about what have you done in your life that you're most proud of? Just one thing that you've done that you're really proud of, you know? Was it demanding? Did it challenge you? Was it difficult? Jesus calls these disciples to go out two by two. Don't take bread. Don't take food. Don't take money. Don't take a bag. Wear your sandals. Don't take an extra shirt. Go out. Rely on the generosity of other people. Go preach the gospel. And then come back and don't have an opportunity to eat. 
And when I say let's go hang out and relax, we get across the lake and there's 15,000 people and you're going to be the busboys and the waiters and you're going to take care of these people. I mean, Jesus demanded a lot of his disciples. I, I mean, do you, I sort of empathize, I sympathize with these guys sometimes. I go, man, I mean, they're away from their families. You know, their, their, their occupations are, 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 they're struggled in their occupation because they, you know, we read in the first two weeks, they left the fishing business. These guys had fishing business. They said, all right, we're going to follow Jesus and they, and they did it. Now, Jesus is not calling us all to quit our jobs and wander around in sandals. I don't think that's the point of the, of the story. But he may be calling you to do something that you don't think you can do. All the things that I did that I've done in my life, winning the hand of my wife, planting this church, completing some, some academic things that I, that I tried... Uh, running a marathon with my cousin last year, everything that I've done that I go, man, I'm kind of I'm kind of proud of that. Every single one of those things required me to dig deeper than I even knew I could. Why would it be different when God calls us? He 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 wants us. He he he's demanding of us. Um, Matthew 10 is just this sort of chilling passage when he says, "Whoever loves their father or mother more than me." He says this to his disciples. Whoever loves their father or mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You think Jesus wasn't demanding? I mean, he just, he was demanding. He wanted everything. He said, if you're going to follow me, it's not, you know, I'm not going to be your weekend lover, as the song says. Uh, I want everything. I want everything. You didn't know Purple Rain was going to make it into this sermon today. Um, Jesus wants everything to you. He, he, this, th- this week, I have just been challenged. In, in the last few weeks, I've talked to Rebecca about I've just been challenged. What does it mean to really follow Christ? What does it mean? And Jesus wants everything. He wants you to follow him with your whole heart. What would that look like for you? Just think about what would that look like to really follow Christ with your whole heart? Number two, following Christ is humanly impossible. Humanly impossible. This is a crowd of about 15,000 people, just to give you a visual. This is a crowd of about 15,000 people. This is in Mexico City, and I hate to admit, you know, I was trying to find a crowd of 15,000 people. I hate to admit what they're doing. They're actually, they had all gotten together to perform Thriller. You remember the dance? So anyway, that's what they're doing there. But that's what 15,000 people do, you know, look like. 15,000 people doing Thriller. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, feed them. You feed them, he says. This is, this is the crowd that they're looking at. Except it wasn't in Mexico City and they weren't doing Thriller. But this is what the number of people. You do it. If you want to just get a visual for what it requires to just... Feed 5,000 people. Take a look at this shot here. This is, this is an attempt by these Filipino chefs to break the world record for the number of cheesecakes ever made at one time. And there were 5,000. So that's what it looks like to try to feed 5,000 people. Okay, I'm just trying to give you some context so you can think about what Jesus was telling his disciples. They had... Five loaves and two fish, and he said, you feed them. 
Jesus asks us to do the impossible. He really does. Love your neighbor as yourself. Really? Really? Can you do that? Turn the other cheek. Forgive 70 times 7 every day. Turn five barley loaves and two fish into food for 15,000 people. On your own, on our own, none of us can do what God is asking of us. And if, if it doesn't seem impossible, it's probably not God asking you to do it. Okay? If, if, if God's asking you to do it, it's not something that you can probably do on your own. You're going to need some intervention. You're going to need some help from God. Uh, here's the flip side of the impossible coin. Okay? Although it's humanly impossible, it's divinely doable if Jesus is asking you to do it. God can turn a few dinner rolls into a feast for 15,000 people. He can mend that relationship in your life that you think is irretrievably broken. He can heal that heart that is suffering and struggling and feels like it will never, ever live again. He can right that wrong that was done to you or done by you. He can restore that mind that is clouded and dark. He can bring justice into whatever situation you need justice. He can provide for you when you don't think you have sufficient provisions. God will make the impossible possible in your life. You have to trust him. You have to let him in. But he can make the impossible possible. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move because nothing will be impossible for you. Luke 18, 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Following Christ means believing in the impossible for your life. Following Christ means when Jesus says, feed 15,000 people, you believe him. Now, you're going to have doubts. All of the disciples said, what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, we're going to have doubts. But over and over, Jesus will demonstrate to you that the impossible is possible when you count on him. Ten years ago, no one, including myself, could have dreamed that this would be happening right now. I just, you know, planting a church and becoming a pastor and being a part of this vibrant congregation that is growing and developing and learning to love God and love one another. Ten years ago, this would not have even remotely... Don't... My wife's tearing up. No one would have believed this possible for my life, including me. Definitely not me. I would have been the last to believe it. And, you know, God has made things happen. God has intervened in my heart and intervened in my life and made things that were absolutely unthinkable 10 years ago possible, and he's turned them into reality. And finally, finally and lastly, following Christ is unimaginably fulfilling. Unimaginably fulfilling. It's demanding. It's humanly impossible. But when you do it, it is unimaginably fulfilling and rewarding. Jesus gives you, God gives you far more than you could have ever imagined. When you ask for a political and military leader, he becomes the leader of your life. He transform your, transforms your life. When you are asking for you know, political freedom, he frees your soul. It's 
deeper and richer and fuller than anything that you could have ever imagined. I read a news story this, I guess it was this week or maybe last week. Uh, uh, have you ever watched this very corny show called Storage Wars on TV? Yeah. Okay. My wife thinks I'm crazy when I watch that. But, you know, these guys, they buy these storage lockers. They buy the contents of the storage lockers before they know what's in them. You know, and they bid on them. And they bid, you know, quite a bit of money on these storage lockers. And then they open them, and it might be like a, you know, a dusty old rocking chair. And they just, you know, they just spent $2,000 on it. Or, it, you know, who knows? It could be a large screen TV, and they only paid 100 bucks for it. Well, a couple weeks ago, a guy on, um, on that show, and I don't think they even captured it on film because it wasn't like one of the, 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 the main stories on the show. He paid $1,100 for a unit down in San Jose. 1100 bucks, And he thought, you know, there might be some paintings in here. There might be something. You know, I'll get, you know, two, three, two, three grand out of this and, you know, and be able to buy another locker. He stumbled upon $500,000 worth of gold and silver in the locker. Silver bars, gold bars that were in a, that were in a safe in this locker. Half a million bucks. The guy paid $1,100 for. Now, that's one of those situations, and he remained anonymous, by the way. He said, I don't actually want to be filmed anymore. Thank you. I'm moving. Um, I won't be buying any more uh, lockers. You know. But in his, in, you know, he, he opens his little Rubbermaid container and finds far more than he could have ever anticipated or thought or wanted. When we allow God into our lives, when we ask God for one thing, he might not give us that thing. He might give us something totally different from that thing we're asking for. But the thing that he gives us is so wildly much better than the thing that we were initially seeking. And I mean that. I mean, I can't, I can, over and over in my life when I pray for this, sometimes I get this and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I get this, which I did not expect, and it just opens up entire areas of my life that I couldn't have anticipated or expected. So it is so deeply, deeply rewarding. This whole story, I think, and, and, uh, and I'm wrapping it up, but this whole story is about longing. These people that flocked to Jesus in the droves, in the thousands, had a longing and a desire and a deep, deep desire to, to, for their lives to start making sense again. That's what they wanted. That's why they wanted a, a political and military leader to overthrow the Roman government. They needed their story to make sense again. We're the people of God. Why, you know, why, why are we being oppressed? It was a story of deep longing, deep sadness. If you strip away from your life the basic desires, just the normal desires, you want a nice house, you want a nice car, you want a good relationship, you want a decent job, and so forth, strip all that away for a minute. What's left? What is the deep longing in your heart? What is it? Sometimes we don't know because we cover it up with all these little peripheral wants and desires. But if you strip all that away, think about what is it that you long for in your heart? What is it that you really, really want in your heart? I think that if you strip all that away, at the inner core of who you are, you will find that there is a longing to be part of something greater than yourself. There is a longing to be a, a part of a bigger story. There is a longing in the human heart to be 
for there to be meaning in your life and for it to make sense and to be part of a narrative and to be part of a big story. That is at the core of the human experience. St. Augustine of Hippo says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Victor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and the unheard cry for meaning, says, ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. The priest Ernesto Cardinal says, all human eyes have longing in them. The psalm writer says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. Even Jean-Paul Sartre, a, a brilliant thinker, not a believer, an atheist, says uh, that God does not exist, he says, I cannot deny. He's not a, he, he did not believe in God. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. Even a great thinker who, is an, uh, who does not believe in God at all acknowledges that there is a deep longing desire for God. The people in this story were angry. They were confused. They were disappointed. They wanted to force Jesus to become their king, to start a military revolt, to violently overthrow Herod and the Romans, and to restore the kingdom of Israel. Only then, they thought, would their lives make sense again. Only then would meaning be restored in their lives. Only then, they thought, would the deep longing in their hearts to live out the li- their lives as part of God's story be fulfilled. But Jesus refused. Instead of swords, he gave them bread. Bread for their body and bread for their soul. Instead of reviving the kingdom of Israel, he ushered in the kingdom of God. A kingdom of the heart. A kingdom that welcomes the entire world into its fold. A kingdom that will never perish. A kingdom where greatness is service. Where wealth is generosity. Where life begins with a willingness to die. Where hope begins with sacrifice. Where power is the admission of weakness. Where abundance is the admission of need. This is the kingdom that he came to establish. This is the kingdom into which each and every one of us is invited today. God does not always give us what we want, but he gives us what we need and he gives it to us in abundance and overflowing. He may or may not give you power, wealth, status, and prestige, but he will give you righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And that is a trade that I will take any day of the week. How does he do it? How does he do it? Just like he did before the multitude. When he lifted up the bread, blessed it, and broke it. He becomes our king. He became our king by lifting himself up on the cross. Opening his arms, blessing us, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then allowing his body to be broken by the crucifixion. This is our king. This is who we are called to follow. 
And following him is extraordinarily demanding, humanly impossible, and unimaginably fulfilling. If you follow him, your life will change. If you truly follow him, your life will change. Your life will become an adventure unlike anything you could have imagined or fathomed. Your life will become imbued with a meaning and a purpose and a hope beyond anything you've ever known before. I just want to challenge all of us today, me and each one of you, let's all become followers of Christ. Let's pursue him with all of our hearts. Let's follow him. Let's meet the demands. Let's do the impossible. And let's enjoy the fulfillment of living lives as followers of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for this story. We're, we're thankful for the richness and the depth of this very familiar story. We're thankful, God, that you've called us and you've, you've placed a longing in each one of our hearts, even if we don't know where we stand with you or we're not quite sure what we believe about you. You've placed a longing in our hearts to seek you, to seek God, to seek meaning, to seek truth and righteousness. You've called us to that. God, help us to... To, to follow that, to follow you. Help us to know what it means to give our lives to you, to commit ourselves to you, to pursue you with all that we are and all that we think and all that we do. God, give us the strength this week. Give us the strength this week to go out and to do your work and to do your way and to think about what this means in our lives and to begin applying this story and this scripture and these truths to our lives on a daily basis. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we get to enjoy you. We thank you that we get to enjoy each other. And we thank you, God, that we get an opportunity to come and glorify you each and every week and throughout the week. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.